strapped in the trenches making moves going all out every day handle business you know that the hustle don't stop got my team let's get it reviewing books and talk stocks steady keep it moving so you gonna want to tune in get low down it's an app get local food on demand delivery right to your home everything in the palm of your hand took hard work and dedication come through join the conversation this is history up in the making we just want to be an inspiration hey let's go Welcome to another episode of Bootstrapped in the Trenches. I'm sorry, Gordon Gecko, but this episode is called Greed Isn't Good. You might not be a fan of that, but that's the theme of this one. I'm here with Dan and Corey. And before we dive into the mastermind by Evan Ratliff and the theory, and not really theory, the theme around greed with our business and the business landscape in general, let's dive into our weekly ritual of food comas, followed by some food news and Corey's food for thought. Let's get rocking with you, Dan. How was last night's meal? It was good. So as you guys know, and now our listeners will know, I am in Charleston, South Carolina right now. Oh, yeah. And I have been going to town on seafood, oysters, all the good stuff down here. But last night, we actually ordered pizza delivery. And believe it or not, it was really damn good. And I was pretty pumped about it. I'm glad Danny t- uh, partook in the ritual of food delivery. So you, you filled her in on the <laughs> protocol with that? Exactly. But not quite because tonight I am not doing food delivery. I actually just ate a meal from HelloFresh. And this is not an ad. And Danny cooked it. It was really delicious. Probably the healthiest meal I've eaten in the last two years of my life, to be honest. What was it, Dan? It was some, like, Nuts and rice and greens and like sweet potatoes, just a lot of a lot of vegetables. I've always wanted to try it. I, I never have. Yeah, I was actually surprised because I I always thought that HelloFresh was you kind of just get the stuff and throw it in the oven, but there's like an hour of prep time. It's a whole process. You're actually cooking. Yeah. See, my problem with that is the the cleaning aspect and the cooking. Like, I think that's what's great about us being in the delivery business. That's such a time commitment of revolving around my eating. I, I can't get behind that. Yeah, I feel like I would give up uh, pretty quickly. I'm, that's, I'm more of a, like a, the, the prepped meal guy where I can just heat it in the microwave, eat it, throw it out. I'm with you on that, Corey. Like, you're uh, – what was that? Eat clean, yeah, bro. Yeah, eat clean, bro. Uh, yeah, it's the same type of vibe. I'm the same way with that where if something – even a lean cuisine or, you know – Hot Pockets, I used to be a huge fan of because it was like, oh, a minute and a half later, I'm eating that crap. And sure, it's not the healthiest of the bunch, but efficiency is the name of the game a lot of the time. And sometimes I think when I eat too healthy, it actually gives me a stomachache. So I don't don't know what that's about. Maybe I'm just so used to not eating too healthy. But I think there's a fine line of eating healthy and too healthy. And if you go over that line, your stomach is not too pleased. Yeah, well, usually healthy foods have a lot of fiber. And uh, yeah, we all know what fiber does. How about those fiber (laughs) one bars, Corey? Exactly. Rule of thumb, never eat a box of fiber one bars before a long road trip. (laughs) (laughs) Or just in general. I think I I had a Guinness World Records of most rest stop dumps over a 12-hour stretch when I drove from Indiana (laughs) to Denver. Wow. Yeah. Can imagine. Oh, man, that was something. 
But like, uh, it's been about trying to tackle those world records. I know. I find them fascinating. I think if you could be known for one thing, more than seven plus billion people on the planet, I mean, you've got something going for you at that point. I, I just find that fascinating. I would love at some point for us to win one of these things. We've got to just find something that's actually a reason, a reasonable chance to, you know, take the crown. Yeah. We almost got there with the dodgeball event. I know. In Bloomington. You know, maybe we could do like most variety of dumplings eaten in New York city within sunset, sunrise to sunset, something like that. Yeah. I mean, that should be an easy one, right? That would make for some good content too. That would definitely be one where there'd be a lot of competition, though. Oh, we'd crush them. We're the dumpling kinks. I actually want to see if that's like a possibility there. That would be a cool thing, even getting the Guinness World Record people paying to have them follow you around as like a segment where you're trying to break that. Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. There's this guy, Mikey Chen, on YouTube. Also... If uh, whenever you guys are on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, Bootstrapped in the Trenches. Oh, Corey, there's a call. guy. Wow. Uh, Mike Chen. Yeah, he just eats everything, but his main thing is dumplings. His channel is called Strictly Dumplings. And I, this guy is so skinny, and he just takes down the most like mass amounts of dumplings. It's insane. I have been looking for a mentor that. for a while. Maybe you just found me <laughs> one. Yeah, he's right up your alley. That's incredible. Wow. I would love to get into a dumpling eating contest with Michael. Did you say his name is Michael Chen? Mikey Chen, yeah. Mikey, Mikey Chen, Chen versus Mikey Rolls, the battle of the dumplings. Yeah, strictly dumpling. Interesting. And Corey, to add to thanks for bringing up the YouTube subscribing. Also, folks, we'd really appreciate if you could rate us uh, wherever you listen, whether it's Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, you know, any platform. We really appreciate you rating, subscribing, listening. You know, without listeners, we don't have a podcast. So, well, I guess technically we do, but we really would love it to not fall on deaf ears. So much appreciated. It's called Bootstrapped in the Trenches, all separated words. And uh, with, with if you're that, listening to Mike's comments right now, you probably know what the podcast is called. Uh, so, all right. So, Dan, we dove into your food last night and today. So that was good. You did pizza last night for Sunday. Corey, how about yourself? Yeah, I went heavy. Uh, I was in Philadelphia. Uh, Sarah and I went to like this wine tasting event, and uh, we ate some Cuban food. And then late night, we went with uh, a Philly cheesesteak. Obviously, how to do it. Did and Sarah then, uh, start the daily accountability hard this morning? Burning yeah, that off? absolutely. Yeah, she's uh, cooking up a steak salad as we speak. Lots of steak. Yeah, yeah. Well, we split a sandwich, so it wasn't too crazy, but. Um, yeah, we're just having a salad. A little Wait, bit of Corey, protein. which uh, place did you go to for a cheesesteak? Unfortunately, we went to uh, Pat's, and it's not, you know, it's a touristy spot, but we were just, you know, it was the only thing pretty much open at the time. Wes wet or without? Uh, I went without. I like just that. Provolone. Yeah, the Wiz kind of grosses me out. I know it's a Philly staple. I don't and, get it, Corey. I'm with you on that. I've never liked Wiz with or without anything. I just, I'm not a fan. It seems way too forced of a hand for cheese. I mean, it's just so, it's like just straight chemicals. And I know people from Philly, if anyone's listening from Philadelphia, would get pissed, but, you know, that's their thing. But why, yeah, why though? Why is that their thing? I want to know, like, what made, almost like vodka in Russia, what makes Wiz appealing for anyone in Philadelphia, actually? I, I don't get it. <laughs> I think it's like the extra fat, like fat content, like on the like with the steak is supposedly, you know, like melts in and yeah, I don't know. It's not, not my thing. 
tastes like plastic. I agree with you. Interesting. Well, that at least you did it the right way. When you're in Philly, you got to get a cheesesteak. Yeah, it had to be done. Nice. And what's going on tonight? Tonight we're just uh, Sarah's making a salad and uh, cooking up some steak to put over it. So a little bit leaner and lighter. Uh, high in yeah. protein. There we go. Exactly. So what uh, what did you dive into last night? So we actually, um, I had a, a couple people in my building threw me like a going away barbecue since I'm getting out of this community here in about 12 days. And they, it was really thoughtful, whipped up surf and turf, some uh, vegetable kebabs and strawberry shortcake for dessert. It was, we had a great night. It was really cool. Wait, Mike, did you sublet your place? No, I'm breaking my lease. Oh, you are? Yep. No, there was not even a bite on my sublet. Like not even an inkling of interest for some reason. I I, I was kind of shocked. Yeah, that apartment's awesome. I know. I literally, they haven't been able to rent out a unit in my building either. That's the exact same one. So I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah, a little too pricey. Yeah. And here we are with Dan with the weekly food news. Dan, what's rocking? All right. So first I want to start off with the coronavirus update. So... I saw something today that was kind of interesting, and there's a bunch of people not only calling a conspiracy, but they're more so really questioning China. And essentially what's going on is China's only biosafety level four super laboratory that researches all human infectious diseases is actually in the town that this started in. And apparently it's only a few miles from the market that it broke out in. So that's causing a lot of suspicion and questions because people are wondering what's going on. Like, did they, did they do it purposely? It just, it seems a little weird that this happened right next to a disease control center. So I figured that would be an interesting thing to dive into. And also just to do the most up-to-date poll, we're up to 1,868 deaths and most of those are in China. So that's the coronavirus news. Curious what you guys think about that. I know I saw, um, I mean, that's insane that it's up to that many deaths, but I saw there is like 300 US people like on a, like a, a cruise in Japan and they sent them all to America, but there's like, I think 18 or 20 of them that were reported to have tested with the coronavirus. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah. Yeah. They've got a couple, They've got one of these boats that people are still stuck on quarantined. Imagine being stuck on a cruise way beyond wanting to be stuck on a cruise. A day into cruises, I'm ready to get off them. I literally, I cannot imagine being in a cramped bunk with a. Fa- imagine with your family just hanging out on a cruise, and you're you're told, "Hey, the cruise is over." But guess what? Yeah, you're with absolutely here for nothing to do. <laughs> I, literally. And the food, like the whole thing would gross me out to an umph degree. That's part of why I hate cruises. I hate it. You know, you're stuck. It's like you're literally stuck, claustrophobic. And the worst, this is a worst nightmare when you think about someone on a cruise. What do you fear most? Someone getting deathly ill and it's spreading like a virus. Now you got people on this boat drinking Coronas worrying, oh shit, I might get a coronavirus, which is obviously not at all pertain to the drink, but it is scary to think about that because when you think of buffets, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not really a fan of buffets, but high end ones are great. Cruises, oh, absolutely not. 
all I've ever, you know, yeah, you go on there and right away you're thinking someone here has already been sick that's in front yeah. of this spread of meats. So I, I naturally am always hesitant yeah, to Grissom, eat on yeah. those things. I also saw that uh, Cambodia allowed one of the cruise ships that was getting turned down from different docks really all over the world to finally dock up in Cambodia. And it was really the government kind of just being like, you know, if we don't do this, who's going to let these people off a damn boat? And apparently, Oh, that's scary. Yeah. Apparently they interviewed a couple of the people on the boat. And I think it was like a bunch of New Zealanders. Like I think the boat was from New Zealand and they were, they were like loving it. They're like, everybody thinks this is terrible. We have free drinks as much as we want, free food as much as we want. And the one guy was like making a joke. He was like, the only complaint I have is they ran out of sun-dried tomatoes about a week ago. He's like, other than that, it's great. And then he would talk about an optimist. Yeah. It was a very optimistic viewpoint. He then went on to say how it was like the most interesting experience he's ever had. He's like, normally when you go on a cruise, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. He was like, this cruise, I mean, he's like, could you believe what's happening? It was actually really funny. We'll see a best-selling book from this. Like that's the one thing when you experience something like that, all of a sudden you have the platform to do something where it's like, oh, I was on this and then this happened. It's a story that's just laid out for you to attain. For sure. Then, uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then another thing that is on my news radar is just that the whole California lawsuits that's going on between the third-party delivery apps and the employee versus contractor thing, California is coming down hard. And these companies are not winning and they're going to have to reclassify all these workers as employees from what I'm seeing. And to kind of go hand in hand with that, this week, DoorDash has taken out a lot of heat for their driver arbitration clause that they have in the contract, which basically is a contract that all the drivers need to sign when they first onboard at DoorDash that states that if they ever have an issue with DoorDash, they can't settle it in court. They have to settle it in arbitration, which is just, you know, and they're getting heat for it. And there's like apparently crafty drivers that are figuring out ways to kind of cheat the system and who knows i'm sick of talking about our competitors on these podcasts like i feel like moving forward i almost want to leave them out of the news because it's like they're not newsworthy anymore screw them i i think their new slogan is going to be robots are bankrupt like straight up i'm not even kidding when i say this i am convinced all of these companies about four or five years ago figured by 2020 i don't know if it sounds futuristic the year or if it's just brainwashing, but flat out, I'm convinced, even from hearing the former Uber guy, CEO Kalanak, he straight up said, this needs to be automated or we're in trouble. That He was talking about that years ago when he was in front of the whole Uber train saying how much the only way you can make money in this industry is by robot drivers. And when you look at this mess now, it all stems from the fact that there's that problem. The economics don't actually work for these companies. So it's going to be interesting to see who's going to go bankrupt, who's going to get bought, and where that leaves us. Because that's uh, it's, it should actually work in our favor, I think. Yeah. You know, like Postmates, personally, I, I don't think any person that has half a brain in the country would agree with what they've just done. I, I'm convinced that there is something behind that. Or they are just literally, maybe the guy lost a bet, their CEO, and 
that he had to do these things to go under. Wait, I have no idea. What are you, wait, what are you referring to? The, them launching all these markets, being fifth to sixth to market, uh, and not even trying to make money. Like, I actually think there is something brewing there that we're not seeing. Yeah, the weird like, part it was just they just make recently any sense. cut well, some markets. Like, then they shut down, like, Mexico City. And, like, a couple months ago, they were cutting markets, and now they're just, like, adding a bunch of markets. Makes no sense. And they're smaller markets. Yeah. That is true. I kind of for- yeah, I kind of forgot about the Mexico City thing, but it does make sense to an extent. I mean, we kind of lived through one of these acquisitions and we saw how it went down. And essentially, once you get into a conversation with a company that expresses interest in buying you, they then kind of set these metrics where they're kind of letting you know how much money you're going to make based on your numbers. And you have a window to get those numbers as high as you can. So yeah, I mean, I think what we're not seeing is what we already know. And that's that they're on the clock and they probably have a multiple that they're getting acquired for and they're trying to get as much as they can out of the sale. I think it's really cool though, what we've been doing now with having the, you know, being in such a saturated industry and how ironically it's helping us evolve our business with these content packages we're going to start dishing out and just staying relevant and distinguishing ourselves. I think it's really cool because there might be a time in the next year or two where our industry isn't nearly as saturated. And we really could look back and be thankful that this even happened because otherwise we never would have spurned what we're doing now. So it really just shows how sometimes when your hands are forced, that's yeah. when the best things happen. So I think that's pretty fascinating. Absolutely. Just like uh, the past couple books we read. Yeah, absolutely. Dan, I wanted you to bring up, I sent you that thing on LeBron. We have to talk about Tristan Thompson, his former teammate, uh, called out his eating habits, yeah, yeah. which I thought was awesome. Amazing. First off, I'm trying. So, what question is what? What do you guys think though of that? Do you actually think LeBron eats like shit, or is he a guy? Well, that it was has a known early in his career that he did eat like shit, and he did. Um, I think his first year in Miami, he gained a ton of weight, and he got criticized. And then he, there is, if you guys remember that one picture, it kind of went viral. It was a picture of LeBron, and he looked so skinny, and it was like he looked disgustingly skinny and there's all those memes about him. People were just mocking him and people, they want to know how he lost all that weight. And that's when he kind of went on that crazy strict diet. And now he's pretty much saying that like, it's a mix of things like, um, you know, kind of what we were saying before earlier in the podcast, he doesn't eat, he eats very healthy, but he also mixes in what he wants. So, you know, he eats carbs and pasta for dinner because he burned, they said that um, he needs to consume almost 4,900, I just read this yesterday, 4,900 calories to maintain his 250-pound body weight, which is the perfect weight for him to play basketball. Wow, that's half of Michael Phelps' calories during his Olympic yep. day. I'll never forget that 10,000 calories a day. I wanted to be that guy for like 24 hours just for his eating, where it's like, oh, I could eat anything on the planet. But you know what? I also think a lot of this, guys, it's that, Corey. And also what I've learned over the years, it's when you eat as much as what you eat. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and a lot of people I think don't actually get that because there was a stretch where I was out of shape early in college when we started B-Town menus. I was eating insomnia cookies every day. And then, you know. And if if you think about that, it's like, yeah, you know, everyone puts on the freshman 15, right? But that's more than anything because of the times that you're eating like this, you know, your, your parents aren't feeding you at three o'clock in the morning when you're in high school, but when you're in college and you're drinking or whatever you're doing, you're just up late. You're ordering pizza at 3am and you know, 
obviously that's kind of how you're gaining weight. And that Crown Royale we used to drink definitely didn't help matters. Yeah, the sugary <laughs> alcohol does not help. But yeah, it's that was cool to see just because I always love seeing anything about athletes and eating. Because you think of like a LeBron James as Superman and the guy is a physical specimen. Not everyone can eat like him and look like that, obviously. Yeah. But you're spot on with how much he works out, burns calories. I mean, who cares if you're eating six pieces of French toast with syrup? I was yeah. so I was so happy when I saw that he eats French toast every morning. I was like, wow, me and LeBron kind of have something in common. Man, you should see if he's down to let you whip up some French uh, challah French he's toast. He's probably never had anything like the challah French toast that I make. Oh, I, I guarantee you he has not. You've got to hit him up. I mean, I feel like that would be such a LeBron move also, is eating Dan's challah. <laughs> is there a chance also like Tristan Thomas was maybe lying? No. I don't Why think he's he, lying. But I think, think about he, it. He'd get called out if he was lying on that. Why would he come out and say that so he, knowing LeBron would be like, dude, what are you talking about? He's a about? Cleveland Cavalier teammate, right? Yeah, they were together. Yeah, on that team. Yeah, uh, no, I mean you're right. It kind of seems like something he'd get called out for. But LeBron also didn't. He didn't come out and say, "What are you talking about, Tristan?" We haven't heard any type of rebuttal from LeBron on this French toast comment. That's true. Yeah. LeBron, any thoughts? Yeah, LeBron, get, get back at us. You can uh, yeah. tweet us. What's our Twitter handle? Bootstrapped in the uh, trenches. Bootstrapped in the trenches. If you need a French toast chef, Dan's got you covered, LeBron. I do. Yeah, that would be something. Um, yeah, I and yeah, kind of have a good new goal now of being LeBron's personal French toast chef. That is setting the bar pretty damn high. It is. I like it. <laughs> Dan, is that one of your predictions of the decade you want to shift? I mean, no. Will you be making LeBron French toast at some point in the next 10 years? If I, That would mean that a lot of really good things happened with our company. Like I, I, you mean that that me that will me? Yeah, no. Not, I mean, I I love where your head's at. I think we should set the ball high, and I think that is something we should put in our decade long goals. And it's one of those things where that's one of those things we should be able to make happen. I agree. It's like the guy we should make a way, figure out a way to make that happen. And hey, I think we could. Let's see how the cookie crumbles on that. Well, one. this is like technically our first request. Like this is us officially asking LeBron if he's down to let me make him holla French toast. <laughs> I mean, who could say no, LeBron? You already eat French toast. And if you've never had holla French toast, which I'm sure you have, you're well-traveled and it seems like your palate's pretty diverse. Listen, we got to make this happen. Yeah, I'm yeah. some Jewish advisors. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know? That's true. And there's probably... You might have a shopper that just gets some challah French toast on a daily basis where it's like, yo, buddy, go get challah bread now. <laughs> I bet one of our listeners is probably like good friends with LeBron and is going to make sure he listens to this clip. Yeah, there's no Jake doubt. Jake Udell, that. if you're listening to this, get LeBron on the horn through someone. Whoa, dude. Let's make it happen. Dude. That would be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Corey, so what do we got food uh, for thought-wise? Yeah, and the, uh, before I get into that, there's one other thing I saw that kept popping up this week in, in, I guess, food news. But it's pretty much that mushroom coffee has taken over uh, San Francisco. Not sure if you guys saw that. But, um, I yeah, I forget the name of it. Maybe um, Haba or something like that. But there's an elixir coffee that's made with mushrooms. And you mix it with um, – 
it's not caffeine, but it gives you the same feeling, but it has a ton of health benefits and it's supposedly it's just taking San Francisco by storm. So assuming that's going to kind of definitely transition into to LA and Denver and to New York pretty soon. I, I think that's the, at the forefront. I think Tim Ferriss had a lot to do with that, with his psychedelic and mushroom research on Plisbolin and all of that. You're now that you're seeing, this is the beginning of that really becoming the next wave. You're yeah. seeing it in mushroom tea, coffee. Let's see what happens after that. Chaga. Boom. Yeah, yeah, Chaga, right. Exactly. Chaga. Love All the right. name. Well, food for thought. Uh, since it's President's Day, I figured go over some famous president or president's favorite foods. So we'll start with Donald Trump. Um, obviously, everyone knows he's a big fast food guy, but his favorite thing to snack on is peanuts. Wow. Really? It's kind of a classy yeah. snack. I, I dig yeah. it. Are they, does he, like, are they de-shelled or shelled? What are we talking about here? De-shelled, de- just straight up peanuts. Uh, yeah. See, I would have had way more respect if he actually went all in the paint there and de-shelled you know himself. It's funny because it it doesn't actually specify, so I just made that up. But uh, I, I can actually see him making a huge mess and then ordering someone to come clean it up. Corey, I was going to say that Don seems like a guy that would have thrived in Lone Star Steakhouse back in the day, where it's just like, hey, Clean this up now. <laughs> you're just chucking stuff all over the place or just smashing them on the ground with authority. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we'll skip to Bill Clinton. His favorite thing was chicken enchiladas. Mm. All right. That kind of goes with his personality. <laughs> it does, right? Yeah. See, he seems like a, f- a funnel cake kind of guy to me. It's just it's, It seems like someone who would have an affair in the White House is a dude whose favorite meal is chicken enchiladas. See, yeah, I, Dan, yeah. a guy from the South that's having an affair in the White House, he's eating fried Oreos, double, triple fried. Like, that dude to me is just, he already had that heart bypass surgery. But see, he that, definitely eats like crap. That's what you think he would eat, but he's so yeah. mysterious that he's eating <laughs> chicken enchiladas. I wonder what Lewinsky, was she into chicken enchiladas? She was into a different kind of chicken enchilada. Oh, boy. <laughs> Supposedly that's how it started, over chicken enchiladas. Speaking wow. of, uh, not to interrupt you here, but did you guys no. see, I don't know if it was a joke or not, but I'm pretty sure she tweeted, Monica Lewinsky tweeted something like a couple weeks ago along the lines of kind of saying like, hey, like I'll take one for the team and suck Donald Trump's dick in office to get him out or something. I swear to God. Good for her for making light of that whole thing. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that blew her up, pun intended. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not going to get him out of office. But, uh, you know, it's good that she's innovating a little. Uh, I don't know why I said unfortunately. I just mean that won't get him out of office. (laughs) Um, Yeah, what was it that she said? I think it was two weeks ago. I'm looking it up right now. But keep talking. Yeah, so let's get down to George H.W. Bush. He was Mm. a big corn pudding guy. Corn pudding? What is that? You know, I've never had it. (laughs) See, I don't like those two in the same breath, Corey. Corn on its own as it is, I'm like, eh, about. Yeah. Pudding? I mean, come on. That's yeah. not, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but you know what? It's probably like a very southern dessert. Mm. But yeah, no, nah, I mean, not for me. Uh, this one I found pretty interesting. Ronald Reagan, well, he was kind of a health freak. Uh, he loved cottage cheese and honey-baked apples. So that actually makes sense. Jimmy Carter, baked grits with cheese. Okay. Which, you know. 
Southern guy makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think he's a Georgia dude, so that would that's fitting. Uh Lyndon B. Johnson, any type of barbecue. Yep. The Texas yeah. dude. LBJ. Yep. Uh JFK, New York, uh New England fish chowder. Sorry, not New York, New England clam chowder. That's fitting. Very fitting. Uh Herbert Hoover. I I've never heard of this. Egg Timbalis. No clue. I mean, see, Hoover had such responsibility during that era with the, I, I believe he, wasn't he involved in the nuclear bomb with Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, he was, he was. So and, yeah, uh, it had to, you know, I don't even know what that egg dish is. So but. it says it's an, uh, a very old tradition that results in egg cups mixed with vegetables and a starch base. So I'm trying to wow. picture that. I wonder if that had any decision-making involvement in that nuclear attack. I mean, what, you know, when you think about a guy like that, what his meals must have been like, even thinking about eating, it would make me sick to my stomach. That's true. He's like, man, I mean, yeah, man. let me just get yeah. this basic egg dish. Um, <laughs> and then we're going to just bomb a country. <laughs> a few more. This one I can respect. Woodrow Wilson, strawberry ice cream. Hmm. Okay. I like that one. With a name like Woodrow, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, William Taft, obviously, you know, one of the fat, the fattest president got stuck in a uh, bathtub, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it says, literally, it says steak, steak, steak. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he seemed like a steak guy. It's good. Hey, at least he's not faking it on yeah. the part. <laughs> and then we'll just end it with the uh, with George Washington. And his favorite thing to snack on was, was nuts. Um walnuts in particular and then he loved hoe cakes which at the time that's what they called pancakes i love the latter there and that's a great name maybe that'll be my new term for pancakes i mean yeah, i love some hoe cakes hoe cakes that's all i wonder what changed the name what happened with that <laughs> i think you uh lacked a couple ingredients that it now has can't imagine what that is because pancakes are very simple but well, that's, Corey, were they not made on pans initially? Like, was this that, a... That's an interesting uh, point. That that could be it. They were Very <laughs> curious. No, that's a, quite a food for thought right there. They might have been made on something called a hoe. Yeah, like one of those farmer tools where somehow they just whipped up batter on a hoe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, so uh, that that's food for thought. Awesome. And yeah, guys, this week we... Uh, before diving into Evan Ratliff's The Mastermind, we are going to dive into our thoughts on greed in general and life and business. We're in an era where we've seen it firsthand in our industry, billions of dollars going into trying to acquire user data, user sales, user attention. And you ask yourself, and you know, we'll dive into this book in a bit, but when is enough enough? When is too much too much? When are you, and we'll be having Chris Miller on later on to talk about, he actually brought that up to me a while ago. He's like, I don't understand, like, why can't you just, you know, stare at a tree and write poetry? He's like, I I don't get, like, and he was half joking, but his whole mindset with that was, when is enough enough? And I, I thought that would be a good premise to dive into here with you guys, because that really is the theme of the world we're in in a lot of ways. We live in a society where there's more storage units than Starbucks times a ton. And that's because people have so much excess shit. I'm moving myself in 12 days. 
luckily I don't even have much stuff and I still feel like I have way too much shit. It's like everyone just has consumption, consumption, consumption. And that's the world we live in, consumerism. So what are your guys' thoughts with the state of greed? Do you think we're at a unhealthy balance? Or do you think this is just part of the world that's always been the case, just different times? Well, if there's an increasing amount of storage units, wouldn't that technically mean that people are starting to get rid of their stuff? Yeah, I feel like it, it has always been the case. And it's interesting because like minimalism is starting to be a thing and people are kind of, you know, some people are getting away from the fact that, or, you know, consuming too much. And I think that will kind of die down. But as we know, I mean, it's definitely the case in business. It was so, it was so interesting actually reading that book right after the four hour work week. Cause it's like the polar opposite notions of one guy's writing a book about basically working just the, uh, enough to be able to support like what he really wants to do, which is just live life or whatever that is that he wants to do. And this book is essentially about not really being able to find any work-life balance where work completely takes over and it almost becomes like a game. And sometimes that's how I think it is with whether it's personal finances, business, when you kind of start to ask yourself, like, at what point is it enough? Is it really that you don't have enough or is building kind of its own personal challenge. And whether you're somebody with Warren Buffett type money or you have $500 to your name, the notion of building and seeing what you have continue to increase, it's almost like the purest form of gamification. And that's kind of where I, that's where, where I've kind of had a lot of self-reflection and realized like where I'm at, it's like, okay, there's enough money where you don't need any more of that. But then it becomes about, like, well, all right, well, what, what do you actually like to do? Like, do you like the notion of finagling numbers and trying to, like, increase that amount? Is that something that's, like, cool to you? And if so, cool. If not, then for you to spend any time trying to build up on money is kind of a complete waste when you think about it. Like, that's what you have yeah, to ask I think so. Part of it, Dan, is wondering, so what you're talking about is a great point. And saying that, when are you at a point where you go down that dark side where it's one thing to be a Warren Buffett who uses his brain in a legal matter? What I want to talk to you guys about is what separates a Paul LaRue from an Elon Musk, where this guy is, was such a genius and he wanted to go be Darth Vader. And there must, I don't know if that stems from, even when you think about it in movies, the good guy, bad guy, there always is someone on the other end of that. And we almost need guys like that. That's the fascinating thing. Yeah, you need the villains. I mean, the, the biggest question I had when I was reading that book was the first original website he had, that was the RX, what was it? RX, uh, yeah, was that like, what, what I was trying to figure out was, was that website legal or illegal? No, it was illegal completely. It was illegal, but the people involved a lot of like the doctors thought it was legal. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right, Corey. That's yeah. the thing. And that was a gray area too in the book. Like they, uh, some of that, it almost seemed like they were kind of faking being naive where when you I, heard, you know, diving into that, some of these guys, it's like, really, man, like I get it in one-off scenarios, but it's like, you never thought through at all what was going on here. But see, he was at the, I mean, he's so smart. It was, it's unbelievable. But he was like, he could have made that website legal at the time, just not selling painkillers not prescribing painkillers but if you look at now there's a million websites you see where doctors are prescribing pills online 
Now you see like the keeps for hair and all uh, ED medic, uh, medicine and all that stuff. It's like, that's totally legal. And he was at the forefront of that, just doing it illegally. Yeah. I mean, he was at the forefront of telemedicine, which you're spot on. That's where we're heading. Concierge doctors being able to prescribe people things from afar remotely. No yep. doubt about it. But then you ask yourself, what exactly was this guy thinking? Okay, you know what? We're going to just turn this whole thing into another level criminal drug pin trafficking enterprise where you're getting some of the most crazy badass in a bad way people cast of characters. It was crazy seeing the people he brought on. I mean, should we just dive into the summary here since we're already kind of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this book is amazing. Let's do it. So to give you guys and girls the rundown here, investigative journalist Evan Ratliff, who was the author, pretty much turned into a detective when writing this. I couldn't tell if this guy worked for law enforcement or if he was a journalist, but he might be rethinking his career after this book. Seriously. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, he was, it was called The Mastermind, which was about Paul LaRue, who he was referring to there. This guy was a multiple multiple murderer, a a prestigious drug pin, an arms trafficker. He solicited rogue regimes all over the map, all over the globe for that matter. He supplied hundreds of millions of doses of painkillers to Americans and the opioid crisis, when you think of the forefront, this guy really is responsible. He's a major piece of that, no doubt about it. And LaRue grew up in, it was what was then Rhodesia and, the, you know, that whole South African province. He was first arrested as a teen for selling pornography. And from there, obviously not a great start <laughs> having that type of thing on your record, but he ended up turning into a software genius. So it's actually funny because I was telling Dan Corey, he kind of reminds me tech-wise of Anthony, where he has a tech mind and it was an engineer going rogue (laughs) when you really think about it. So he grew up, like I was saying, in Rhodesia. He turned into this software genius, which was interesting because I know Elon Musk grew up in South Africa. There was something about turmoil back then and some of these geeks just turning into evil geniuses. I don't know. I'm yeah. not saying Elon Musk is evil, but it's just crazy that they grew up in the same area with that type of mind. I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. But yeah, his first major criminal venture was like you guys were just highlighting the online pharmacy scheme, this RX Unlimited in the mid 2000s. He basically coined himself as a more efficient prescription refill, refill service. And in actuality, what this platform did was deliver millions of doses of addictive painkillers that weren't actually prescribed legitimately at all. You had doctors just writing prescriptions out of their pharmacies, making extra money, thinking there was nothing wrong with it, which was really fascinating because this was the beginning of uh, the internet era when you really think about it. This was back when we were starting B-Town Menus in the wee infant search days. So the idea of in 2005, 2006, having an on-demand pharmacy for delivery, it's shocking to me that wasn't ruffling feathers way more at the time. I know, just like actually having that many customers at, it, at their disposal at yeah. that time is, is incredible. It, wild. And so what ended up happening, Ratliff goes into this. It starts off with this uh, one threat of law enforcement back in 2012 when LaRue was arrested and he ended up cooperating with the Justice Department. This guy was so crafty. He, the way it, it broke down, actually, there were a couple Minnesota DEA investigators 
de- small guys on the totem pole, not like big time fish, but they were basically focusing on the diversion of prescription drugs to illegal markets around the world or actually around the country at first. And they ended up looking at FedEx shipping records. And this ended up leading to the trigger of unraveling all of LaRue's huge criminal empire. And his profits from cyber crimes ended up funding other illegal ventures. What was crazy about this, he could have, the way this guy is with how smart of a man he is, he could have most likely gotten away early on with what he had built and just called it quits and been a, a kajillionaire. But the, the greed got to him. There was something about this guy I thought was fascinating. If you guys saw it too in there, he, was, he thought based on algorithms, not emotions, which I think really made me think a lot about how tech-minded people are a lot of the times where they, don't, they think about things in a logical manner, but not with humans sometimes. It, it really is about, oh, okay, well, technically this makes sense if you run the numbers. And this guy was literally running things by the numbers to a T when if anyone stepped back and he had any type of real emotional intelligence, he would have been like, oh shit, I'm stopping this immediately. I'm going to cash out. But he wasn't thinking about it. He wasn't caring about putting people in danger that he hired or what would happen, you know, killing people that were ODing. That didn't go through his head. He was being calculated off of an algorithm-based mindset, which I, I think is really cool. And something to think about is we're heading into that uh, era. I, I think Ray Dalio's principles will definitely be a book we want to dive into one of the podcasts, but he goes into how algorithms are going to be something that we all have to help make decisions. So that came to mind when I read that. Um, but yeah, LaRue was obsessed with power and greed, used a twisted combination of financial incentives, psychological control, death threats, you named it. He expanded his empire into anything from gold, illegal drugs, arms deals, had call centers in Tel Aviv that were clearly not legitimate companies, but had people running them as though they were. And yeah, overall, he was a devious mastermind who helped fuel, like we were saying, the opioid epidemic that is now rampant in the United States. And uh, I'll leave it over to you guys to dive into from there. I feel like first we just need to quickly address in general the black web because People, I don't think people even realize. I mean, the first time I realized it was that Silk Road book, The American Kingpin, yeah. which is obviously like a really similar book, but it's almost like the United States version of this. But for anyone listening that's kind of wondering what we're even talking about here, there are literally websites on the internet where you could buy any illegal thing known to man, any drug, any weapon, anything. I know people who Social have security numbers. Yeah, it's it's insane. Fake passports. I know people who have used slash continue to use these websites on a regular basis. And what's crazy about it is the way that they're set up with the IP addresses is it'll take years for the governments to find them and shut them down. And the second they get shut down, another one pops up. So it's literally it's insane because and just one of the interesting things to kind of talk about is just the notion that it points back to the whole belief that everything that can be digitalized at some point will be digitalized. And when you really think about the black web, the black web is just digitalized organized crime. And when you look at websites like RX Limited or even like the Silk Road, they're 
basically the absolute norm now and similar to what we're doing in our industry it's allowing people it's basically allowing entrepreneurs who have the resources to work remote to work remote and it's allowing criminals who used to be in-person drug pens to set up these kajillionaire status operations from a computer and it's essentially to the point where you could have full-on confidence that if you're walking into a random coffee shop really anywhere in the world and somebody's on their laptop there's just as good of a chance that they're selling hundreds of kilos of cocaine to another country as they are possibly trading stocks and i think that's what's kind of cool is the whole notion that technology enables remote whether it's legal or illegal and that was just kind of something that I kept circling back on when I was reading the book. It was also very movie-like. I mean, you're talking about this guy sending hundreds of millions of dollars of drugs on yachts across the country, safe houses in Hong Kong filled with gold bars. He talks about like this group of meth dealers in North Korea that eventually basically are under United States law. I mean, when I was reading that, I was just thinking to myself, like who has the balls in North Korea to do anything illegal, let alone export and make meth. And yeah, I mean, the government, the government, that's definitely true. And even like that scene when he has his muscle guys bring that guy out, Oz out to the ocean just to talk to him. And the guy asks him to stand up and then throws him overboard and starts like shooting at him in the ocean, intentionally missing almost as a warning. I mean, this guy was literally in the, the drug pins that you see in movies. It was crazy. The other thing that was crazy was how it all connects back to the rise of their leader, that Rodrigo Duterte guy, who's kind of... Yeah, in the Philippines. In the, yeah, in the Philippines. At the end, it kind of talks about how the way that guy was campaigning was, it, it, it was in light of all this stuff. And he would literally say, I'll quote it, all of you who are into drugs, you son of bitches, I will really kill you. He pledged to kill 100,000 drug dealers, dumping many bodies into the Manila Bay, so many so that fish will grow fat. And at the time, yeah. he was literally looked at kind of how Donald Trump was before he was elected, where people like almost took him to be a joke. They didn't take him serious. And then he ended up getting elected. A year after he gets elected, he kills more than 7,000 suspected drug users, drug dealers, some of them who who he literally is killing by himself. And then the human rights groups start coming down on him. And his response was that the human rights people will commit suicide if he finishes these all. So, yeah, but I think something to add to that, Dan, if you look dove into that deeper, like real deep, that guy was actually planning. He didn't kill any of the top dogs. LaRue and him would have been, if he didn't end up going down, how greedy LaRue got, him and Duterte would have had quite an alliance. That Duterte does not get rid of the LaRues. He gets rid of the small-time guys, yeah. He keeps those guys making him money. That's the fucked up part about all that. He's killing the people that are ODing and, like, the small-time dealers. The actual drug pins, they're on his payroll. Wow. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah. It, it, it's just so crazy. Like, this kid, this LaRue comes from a well-off family. And he's a genius programmer. And like, just what makes someone like that turn so evil? I mean, the descriptive killings this guy had, you know, planned out is just insane. And it's just like, what makes someone 
again, just from a good family, good upbringing, smart kid, genius, it turned to that. And I think it was his intelligence was on a level where he, he was so invincible in his own head with how he thought that he just didn't, I, literally, I don't think he, th- he took emotions as part of it. That, like, I yeah, actually I mean, think it was all analytical and all, oh, well, the odds are in my favor here, technically. I mean, they were. He went a decade without getting caught. If his own guy didn't turn on him, he probably still would be around and or still be doing this shit. And what's also crazy to kind of dive into what Dan was talking about with the black market today, that's pretty much run like through Bitcoin, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like most payments and transactions. And it was just came out a couple of years ago, I think in 2018, 2019. They think LaRue started Bitcoin because he has... Yeah, he has a million dollars of Bitcoin or a guy with a fake identity that no one can tra- track down has a million, a million Bitcoin, not a million dollars, a million Bitcoins. And they haven't been touched in eight years since he's been caught. Oh, he, and hey, so, it's possible. I'm, it's definitely possible. So, I'm convinced. Yeah, he's linked to that. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced too. He's all LaRue, the founder of Bitcoin. I'm, yeah, and I'm going to say he is. And I also just saw that. Um, oh, of course. So that, you're actually calling Paul LaRue is the founder of Bitcoin. You think so? 100%. He's definitely, if he was not, yeah, I mean, it, it all makes sense. Master coder, best, one of the best of all times. And he's trying to hide money, doing everything as he was getting away with everything and hiding everything. It kind of just makes sense. When you actually do break that down, it is very logical to think a guy like that with what he was building would create a currency that could not be manipulated by central governments. I love how they're, um, anytime, you know, like his protocols, if a cop comes or anyone comes, as soon as they shut the laptop, everything just is completely like protected. And he just slams the laptop down and everyone, like, no one can get into it and read the files. He's just such a genius. I know, and I, I thought it was fascinating how he was trying to build an empire by impregnating all those Filipino women, <laughs> where he literally, it was crazy. Like, he actually was planning on building his own, like, fleet from yeah, his children well, of helpers. It was crazy. I think there was something, that was the Brazilian woman he was trying to impregnate just to protect himself, because if his child was born on Brazilian soil, um, they, they couldn't come after his kid, and if he put all the money in his kid's name, you know, they would have that money forever. Yeah, and then he couldn't be extradited and he would, exactly. nothing would have happened to him from the crimes he committed there. There was something, yeah, Brazil and the Philippines, he was planting these seeds that were all, le- and that showed how he didn't actually care about emotions because so, he would just use people in ways to dictate his protocol where it's like, oh, well, this makes this more likely to happen. So it was almost like a giant chessboard using people as pawns. Absolutely. And when you think about it, I know we were actually talking about Medicaid earlier a bit. It's fascinating to think about the uproar in our country with like the, you know, the debates coming in full circle now with another election only, you know, less than a year away, nine months from now. It's fascinating how it's just fascinating when you look at how people can access medicine now through telemedicine. This healthcare debate is kind of ludicrous. When you really think about it, I don't think any of these candidates even understand what it is that they're supporting, nor how it, the process works. And I think it's extremely complicated. And personally, of course, every person should be able to, if they're sick, get taken care of. That should be a human right, in my opinion. Yeah. The structure of that, 
it's a mess. I don't, I don't personally know what should go into that with taxes, but when you look at some countries like Norway, Scandinavia in general is really good with that. So is Sweden, Denmark, mean, where they take care I mean, of their people. Yeah, even, even Canada. Um, and then another thing I saw is um, Amazon actually. Um, so the Russo brothers who pr- uh, produced and wrote um, Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler, they they bought the rights to this movie and it should be coming out either as a limited series on Amazon or a movie on Amazon in the next year. Oh, so I'm pretty pumped. That's going to be a good yeah, one. It's a good, it's a good story. There was also, I don't know if it was the, uh, first off, it was crazy that there was like these two FBI agents in Minnesota that were kind of like on this whole case. That was insane. But there was something at the end, how they were kind of talking about how they felt like a big part of this guy's journey and legacy it was almost to get to this point where three random dudes like us are talking about him on a podcast where this guy wrote a book about him. Like, I wonder at what point did he kind of know, you know what, I'm going to take this to the point of drug pin legacy. I'm going to get arrested one day, but it's going to be in such a big, massive way where everyone's going to talk about me and it's going to, I'm going to go down as that guy. I don't think he actually thought, even when he got arrested, if you know, the guy like thought to himself, he was going to get out of, out of jail. Like, almost, I don't think a guy, did. yeah, yeah, he almost did. I don't think a guy like that thinks to himself, about the idea of getting caught. I think he thinks he's invincible. I think he thinks he's smarter than everybody and he has a solution to any problem. So that's where it's interesting to think about that hard wiring because to pull something off like that, it's hard to imagine you're really thinking about consequences at all because he was doing things that could have gotten him the death penalty in many places. (laughs) So I, I don't think he really thought about ramifications from his actions. That's true. There's definitely something to be said for these guys kind of just moving around these broken state countries. Mainly, you always hear about it in Asia. Like It kind of reminded me of the billion-dollar whale, which was that Malaysian scandal. Just these people hide out in these Asian countries, and they just avoid the law, it seems like, for years. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, there's always someone looking for them. That's the thing. When you're on the run, where's the peace of mind? Like it's what, what, what's the actual end game there where, and maybe the chase is what really gets them enamored where it's, it actually is their ongoing purpose, you know? There's yeah, def- I, yeah. I, I, I just hate that. Like he got into importing methamphetamine, cocaine, like, dude, just stick to what you were doing. <laughs> like, why did you get so gritty? It's unbelievable. I mean, he could have definitely gone the kosher route and been uh, one of the richest people in the world by being at the forefront of telemedicine. The guy, that's what's fascinating to me is he could be a multi-billionaire. Right. It's not in jail and owning a country and islands and all, and impregnating millions of Brazilian women. Exactly. And that's what I, that's, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. It's like, I just don't understand if money was the thing he's after, just do it legally. You have the brain to do it legally. He was on the right track. And yeah, you could have fine-tuned that, not done it illegally, but done it illegally, done it legally, made all that money, and then not, you know, sold cocaine and killed a bunch of people. <laughs> like it just makes no sense. Yeah. I think he just was fascinated by the operating. I think he's an operator to the death of him, and he the money seemed to really be not the priority. Like it, he had so much of it, and it didn't seem like it really. It was like he walked around in flip flops and shorts and like a you know, a Hawaiian t-shirt. The guy didn't seem like a guy that actually cared about spending money himself. Yeah, he but, liked the power it brought. But, right, but as soon as someone stole from him, he killed them. 
I, well, yeah, the, I think that's a very binary win-loss. I think he's literally just a guy that needs to win, win-win, and that, it has nothing to even do with the financial end of it yeah, for him. Morals. Or if it did, he wouldn't even – he would have cut when he was way ahead and just stuck to that RX it did kind of early It on. did kind of seem like, though, he enjoyed the whole glamour yeah. lifestyle that – yeah, like the gangster glorified – speed cars yachts drugs women like all the things that sometimes those people don't like again if you look at how he compares to the dude from the american king pum book that dude really didn't care about money he didn't even do anything with the money he never changed his lifestyle whereas this guy was kind of like an animal yeah literally so yeah it's definitely that was a great read and i think a lot it it makes you really think a lot about life and decision-making and when, how, you know, we're all, I think, trying to find that happy balance. And this is a prime example of there being no such thing as balance. And, you know, I, I think there's no doubt there are certain situations in life to accomplish anything extraordinary. Balance might not even be in the vocabulary for certain people. I know I struggle with that myself with certain things, but I, I think it's important for all humans to have that balance beam going up and down. Seems like the, the, I was going to say, it seems like based on what I read, Jeff Bezos seems to have balance. It's a guy who seems like he kind of has the whole work play thing figured out to an extent. I think you would too, Dan, with billions of dollars. Like I think when you reach a point, it's very easy to preach balance. Was Jeff Bezos in a balancing act in the late nineties? I have no idea. Maybe. He's probably balancing books on shelves. Exactly. He, he really that was. was his balance. <laughs> yeah. So, what, what else, guys? I want. I know we had the uh, NBA dunk contest. Did you guys happen to catch that? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I mean, I was rooting for Aaron Gordon. He did some unbelievable dunks that I've never seen. He didn't win. Uh, Jones won, but I mean, Aaron Gordon. I, I don't know if you guys haven't watched it. It's I, some of the best dunks I've seen. I think ever in any slam dunk contest really that's Absolutely. a bold statement yeah no i know but that's the guy from u of a right yeah 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 he, i think he's on the magic um unbelievable the way i mean he's he's huge like he's a tall guy he jumps i mean incredibly high but to like being that tall and to maneuver the way he does is unreal i, I definitely See, I, yeah yeah watch them it it was really good I just, you know what's interesting? I feel like back in the day, being like in the Dominique Wilkins, Michael Jordan era, even like up until the Vince Sanity, Vince Carter, windmill dunk, windmill dunk he pulled off, I almost feel like it was more of a clout situation back then where you knew the best of the best in the league were competing in the dunk contest. Now it's almost like if you're in the dunk contest, you didn't make it to where you could have been. Like Aaron Gordon to me, when I remember him at U of A, I thought that guy was going to be a stud on another level. He hasn't, the fact that he's in the dunk contest a few years after being drafted, I don't, this probably is his claim to fame. Let me just say he was also (laughs) in the dunk contest as a rookie. That guy's always been a freak with dunking. That's what I mean. You know, like he'll be known as a guy that crushed it in the dunk contest. If you were him, would you want that reputation? He's having, he's been having a great couple last couple of years. He's been really good. I mean, he was injured one year. I don't even think he played, but um, he's having a great season. He's just, he's on Orlando. No one pays attention to that market. You know, he just kind of got drafted to a bad team. One of those situations, but 
He's definitely, I mean, yeah, you know, he's not the player I thought, but he's definitely developed his game. He's got a great outside shot now. Um, and yeah, he stepped it up. But you're right with I, most yeah. of these players. Dude, if I'm the NBA, I am making it worthwhile for Kevin Durant, LeBron James, bring these guys in next year. Figure out how to make that happen. Like what I've always loved about the NHL competition all throughout the year, whether you love hockey or not, when you watch that all-star competition, it's phenomenal because you have the best of the best competing in skills where it's like, oh, who has the fastest shot? Who's the most accurate? You know, and I, I think that's something when you look at the NBA, I don't get pumped for the uh, dunk competition. I really don't. I used to. You're No, you're right. But um, in saying that, the all-star game was also the best all-star game, I think, ever that I've ever watched. Really? Yeah. Besides, wow. like, you know, you used to watch – Jordan or Glenn Rice that time he hit like 12 threes in a game in the all-star game but this was the best one uh they won by one point or two points and it was down to the wire and it was good basketball um and it was fun to watch that's cool. yeah that's awesome back up back to Aaron, Aaron Gordon I just want to say that I was fortunate enough to get to see that dude in action when he was on Zona twice and he it was once in Boulder and once in Vegas and that guy destroyed the buffs. Like, I'm pretty sure he put up 35 points. He would dunk from the three-point line. Like, he was Superman in college. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he, he was awesome. That was back when the buffs didn't have the guys they do this year. Like, th- this buffs team is way more legit. That, that actually brings me to a revision of a possible prediction I made. Buffs, Elite 8 bound. Whoa, that it. is bold. I can we see got it. a lot of bold statements on this podcast today. <laughs> I actually think the Buffs are Elite Eight bound, dude. They are so damn nasty. If they could just get through that first game and kind of like be in game mode, they're going the, they're going the distance. Yeah, they, they, they look awesome this year. And on Indiana's note, I'd say we have a year before Archie Miller starts getting called for his head. Like starting to Corey be a disaster. It's a disaster. Did you, he ain't Sean Miller. That's you, for you know that if Indiana's playing away, we're going to get smoked. It's It sucks. I, just, it, I hate to say this. I, I'd rather have Queen back. I never thought I would say this. The guy, Scott IU, every year they were in the mix to at least win the Big Ten, make a Sweet 16. What, what is, I thought Archie Miller was going to be phenomenal. I actually did. I convinced myself of it. He looked like an IU coach, and he's not his brother. I'm, he's just not Sean Miller. It's clear. Yeah, it's very upsetting. It is upsetting because that guy looked like a gamer and he looked like a guy that you were going to look back and be like, finally, we found a dude to replace Bobby Knight. We didn't. Yeah. And we still we have not been elite since Bobby Knight left. Any way you spin it, we're not Indiana basketball. Maybe I feel like you got to give it one more year with that guy before you're calling for his job. His coaching this year has been abysmal. This team is way too talented. Corey, you've seen it. They have such talent on the floor. It drives me insane. It's not like, oh, they need to recruit better. It's like, no, no, no. You suck as a coach. Sorry, pal. Go back to Dayton. Honestly, I would have rather had Crean stick around. I I hate to say it. Yeah, I mean, listen, Crean was a great coach and a great recruiter. He just, there was just stupid things he did. Like, he was the worst timeout, uh, after timeout coach ever. Yeah, he couldn't get to, he lost that year to Syracuse because he didn't understand how to, change game plans. It was insane. It was like, dude, this is a zone. It's Jim. He also, he also always kept IU relevant. You guys were like the number one overall team that year. He beat that like best ever, team ever in Kentucky. Like, yeah, you man, know, like, and he turned, he turned yeah. like 
I mean, Victor Oladipo was a three-star recruit, turned him into an absolute stud by the time he graduated at IU. That's been my problem with uh, with Archie Miller. I have not seen any type of progression with players at all. It's like, dude, what's going on here? You get five-star recruits, they turn into three-star recruits. Like, it's not like these guys are elevating their game whatsoever under his watch. Yeah, agreed. So uh, I think it's time for our, sorry, Archie, but you're not going to cut in Bloomington much longer. Yeah. Step it up or you're out. Did you guys happen to catch the mic'd up stuff going on with the buffs in their I last did. game? Damn, did you I watch loved it? it? I thought that was fascinating. Corey, they were basically mic They had the mics on the coaches all game and during halftime. What I thought was cool about that, seeing the locker room, for one, the locker room banter during halftime was dope, but I loved in between at timeouts hearing, and you could tell when a team is good and when they're not. The Buffs are a good team this year. They're interactive in the huddle. Their players are engaging with the coach. Then you see Oregon State, their coach is having a mental fart and forgetting the plays designing. I thought that was really cool because when you think about it and you don't see these things or hear them, you don't know what's going on, but you know, coaches make mistakes too. And that was really cool to see Wayne Tinkle, Oregon State's coach, making a blunder on the mic and his player actually corrected him for going out of the huddle. So I thought that was, I think that's something they need to keep doing and it will get way more people into the coaching state of mind. As like, Dude, kids. 100%. Uh, apparently that it was like very, very well perceived. People were loving it and it was cool. You were hearing like, Again, you don't know what the coaches say. You just see them flipping out. And the coaches, they all talk to the referees on a first-name basis. Like, they're screaming at them. It's the funniest thing ever. Yeah. I never knew what actually happened. It was, it was amazing. What a, it was what a name, up. Wayne Tinkle. I think that's one of my Wayne, favorite coaches now of all time. And it, it, it makes sense. Name. I think they should even do that in the NFL instead of miking up players. I think the coaches are the people we want to hear because they're – Corey, it's too absolutely. All, all we would hear is beep. Beep, beep, you motherfucker. You know, like everything with those NFL coaches. That would be entertaining. That would be entertaining. You're probably right. It was just funny. Have you guys- Boyle and uh, Tinkle were very polite. Like, they're very, you could tell, like, good dudes. And I don't think, I think that worked great for that game. There's no doubt there would be some television with some of these coaches where, like, I'd love to hear Mike Gundy, the Oklahoma State football coach. Remember oh, that epic rant from that press conference? Yeah. yeah. That's a guy that would be <laughs> phenomenal to watch mic'd up. Yeah, no, for sure. Have you guys been watching the drama with uh, CU Buff former head coach Mel Tucker unfolding? That, that to me was absolutely pathetic. Like at the end of the day, yeah. I get it. Your salary doubles at Michigan State. You don't do that though. There's a time yeah, and a the- place. You don't have recruits, young kids that are making the biggest decision on their lives, banking on you as a person and a coach going into a family's dining room or living room being like, hey, you could trust me. I got your kids back and then bailing. That's that's just tacky. I, I'm not a fan. I already hate Miss State as it is. <laughs> On top of that, I was reading last night how, you know, the night that he announced he was leaving, they had some one of those alumni fundraiser dinners at the Denver Cherry Creek Country Club. And apparently like he was there while his agent was finalizing the Miss State deal. And there's like people kind of recalling back from his demeanor that night. And there was like this one moment where apparently he was kind of like saying how he was a little frustrated that he didn't get to keep some of his assistants. But then he was like, but could you blame them? Their salaries were doubled. 
And apparently, like, he had this look in his eyes, like, he knew, like, yeah, I'm also leaving, and tonight it's going to get announced, and this is, like, my farewell dinner. Nah, it, yeah, it's been it's been shaking off Buff Nation. It's t- it's ridiculous he even went to that dinner with that was so such a heated conversation of being a possibility. Yeah. Like, I, if I, I'm that guy, if I'm even on the brink of making a decision like that, I'm, I'm telling the Boulder faithful, listen, you got to find a new coach here. And, that, and what sucks is if CU had a little more heads up, you might be bringing in Eric Bellamy, uh, you know, the offense coordinator of the Super Bowl winning Kansas City Chiefs, former buff, yep. who to me would be the best coach possible for them right wow. now. He, you know, so that, that might be, uh, you know, I'd love the buffs to get him. I don't see him making that move now because he's a head coach candidate in the NFL and will definitely get a gig there next year. So that, that was, that was tough for the Buffs. Yes. But at least their basketball program. So you're saying that the timing on this, like kind of fucks them for next year. Yeah. Completely. Because now you're going to have a bunch of transfers, kids leaving Boulder that wanted to play for Mel Tucker that will definitely be bouncing. So, yeah. It's crazy how they've turned into a more of a basketball program. Tad Boyle's done a hell of a job. When you look at what that guy has done, turning CU into a relevant basketball town. Speaking of uh, CU Buffs basketball, just killing it. Spencer Dinwiddie has been unbelievable. I mean, obviously, uh, the newspapers here. Every, he's, I, I couldn't believe it. He's been on like 15 articles or 15 uh, front pages of the Daily News, New York Times in the last like, Two three months, Mike. We're talking so about that. Makes me so happy. Yeah, he's unbelievable. Who? Tad Boyle, Spencer Dinwiddie. Spencer. Oh, I mean, yeah, Spencer Dinwiddie is a beast. That guy. Uh, it's good seeing him hitting his stride, staying healthy. Yeah. That Buffs team. If he never tore his uh, Achilles or ACL, whatever that was that year, that was that team yeah. that was as good as this one. Yeah, and- that was a special team. Is uh, is Dinwiddie like more popular in New York or New Jersey? Um, New York, New, is New York, Brooklyn, definitely uh, Brooklyn. But the cool part, he was, I saw an interview with him. Um, he's just having an unbelievable season. And he was saying, like, it is so much easier in the NBA for him than it was in college because they, they just they give him the lane, and that's where he does best. Like, he either drive, kick it out, and then obviously he's literally just completely – he's wet from three-pointer. He hits every single shot. I mean, yeah. he, yeah. he turned it to a, just an all-out stud. I feel like that was Oladipo, too. I remember my dad always used to say that, where you could tell when a guy is on another level where he's, like, waiting. Like, the he's so fast in his head and his pace mm-hmm. that these guys can't even keep up. That's when you know you have an NBA stud on your hands. Yep. So some of these guys, they just see the playing field differently. They go to the next level, and it's where they're meant to be. Yeah. Well, yeah, everyone that's listening, we really appreciate the support. We're having a lot of fun building this podcast. Again, it's called Bootstrapped in the Trenches. We would really appreciate if you subscribe to our YouTube channel and rate us about five stars, folks. Come on. I know you have it in you. And uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll be having Chris Miller on uh, for you foodies and folks here soon. So stay tuned for that. And uh, have a great night. Bootstrapped in the trenches, making moves going all out. Every day handle business. You know that the hustle don't stop. Got my team, let's get it. Reviewing books and talk stocks. Steady keep it moving. So you gon' wanna tune in. Get Lowdell, it's an app. Get local food on demand. Delivery right to your home. Everything in the palm of your hand. Took hard work and dedication. Come through, join the conversation. This is history up in the making. We just wanna be an inspiration. Hey, let's go.